Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Jeff Norcross. Last Friday, four skateboarders rode their boards into the Pacific Ocean in Newport after riding across the country. (laughs) (laughs) Ah! We're here, the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) Yeah, they put the video on Instagram. They did a relay all the way from Williamsburg, Virginia, to here. That's like 3,000 miles. It took them 17 days and six hours. Now they've had a few days to rest. We're going to talk to three of the participants. Andrew Andrus, Paul Kent, Rick Stubblefield. Welcome to Think Out Loud. It's good to have you. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Andrew, uh, I understand you. Andrew, I'm going to start with you. I understand you were trying to break a record here. Did you do it? Uh, we did. Uh, the prior set record was 21 days. So oh, um, you nailed. Oh, we were pretty, you blew it away. Yeah, <laughs> we blew it away. Um, and uh, and you know, and it was it was it was a pretty amazing uh, you know experience. And, and the feat that side of it of just setting what is known as an FKT, a fastest known time. Yeah. So these happen often in uh, endurance sports, like people trying to do the AT trail or whatever. They do the fastest. So. Yeah, this was a this was a route established by you know Jack Smith. Uh, Forty seven years ago, he did this crossing, and every decade or so, there would be a new group of skaters. And this group we had here compiled the four of us really wanted to kind of lay down like a really you know a tougher FKT you know uh, known time for the crossing. So that was kind of what our mission was. On top of just the whole experience of everything, you know, of the all encompassing of, of what this thing is, uh, you know, of skateboarding across your, your country. Yeah. And congratulations, first of all, for uh, blowing out the record. Um, what, what is it about, you said this route was well established and it has been for decades now. What is it about this, this route that makes it the way to get across the country on skateboard? Right. And it really just, it started with the, you know, Jack Smith, who was our support crew uh, for this crossing. And it was, it was something that him and his friends in 1976 were like, you know, they're out of California. And I suppose I, uh, you know, from the way Jack tells a story, they figured there'd be less traffic. It'd be cooler in the summer of kind of doing a northerly route of, you know, of Oregon to, uh, to Virginia. And so, uh so that that's kind of how it was, it was picked, really, more more than anything, just purely on um, traffic, I think, and weather. Yeah, Paul, uh, was one of you rolling the whole time during that seventeen days? I mean, constant. Was there somebody on the road at at all times? So no, we weren't on the go twenty four hours a day. Um, that might have been the best way to get it done fast. However, we were using the established method as well uh, on top of like, like on top of it being the established route we also used jack smith's formula um and we had jack smith himself actually <laughs> like in the driver's seat saying okay you're out of the van you go sort of thing so that worked well um you know maybe one day someone will go ahead and do the 24-hour sort of attempt which would be tough but um but we 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 decided that we would uh stick to jack's route jack wanted to see he always wondered how fast it would happen if he had like people who actually did this like trained for this um 
how fast it would be if he, they use his method. So we still were only riding, I think maybe like 12 to 13 hours a day. Um, as for how many people were on the road, I would say roughly one and a half because <laughs> it was a leapfrog style relay. So one person yeah. would go, the vehicle would drive up ahead to pick up that rider. And while waiting for that first rider, they would let the next one go ahead and then pick up rider one, drive to ahead to pick up rider two and then let the third one go so on and so forth uh, basically for the entire duration of our ride for the day and how did you decide when one was done and the other was going to pick it up a lot of factors uh went into those decisions um i mean so the the original was five miles so we kind of roughly stick to that but it depended on the rider it depended on the course uh so we would kind of nudge the distance based on rider's strengths and potentially like weaknesses, maybe a temporary thing, right? Like maybe somebody was injured, maybe give them a little bit less of, you know, a flat section. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was the uh, designated downhiller. So when the downhills got like dangerous, I just had more experience with that, those sorts of situations. So for that reason, they would, sometimes place me on the top of the hill so that way try to time the legs so that way i would end on the top of the hill so that way i could do it and that of course would typically be longer than five miles if it was a big scary hill so um so you know often we would send andy out because he's like an endurance monster so <laughs> he can go all day like no problem so you know, if we needed to send someone out early in the day while everyone else was still setting up the van, Andy was usually the first choice. Yeah, well, Andy, how does how does longboarding over distances like this impact your body compared to other endurance sports like, like running or, or cycling or swimming or whatever? Right. Um, actually, uh, uh, distance skateboarding is, is very low impact, believe it or not, uh, you know, pushing, you know, and the, the boards we have for the, our specific sport the competitive side of this, you know, or, or nice big urethane wheels. The the boards are very efficient. They're they're set up. They're they're lower to the ground, so the step down isn't is drastic. So truthfully, it's it's very low impact um, compared to running. I, I'm an ultra marathon runner as well, and uh, and when I run, you know, trails and hills and mountains, like I I feel way more beat up than I do when I say, for instance, one of the big races that we have in our sport is a 24 hour race. And, uh, although that one, you'll be very tired, but it doesn't, and I just don't feel like it beats me up as bad as, uh, as running a hundred miles, you know, so, uh, very low impact and it kind of shows in, uh, in the demographics of our sports. Like we have a lot of 40 and 50 year olds that do the sport because they used to do a lot of running or they, this or that, and they end up finding, uh, long distance skateboarding is, is much, uh, much easier on the joints and, and, and the body. So. Yeah. Rick Stubblefield, uh, could you take me through a typical day out there over the last 17 days? What was a, what was a typical day, if there was such a thing? Yeah, well, um, we'd get a fairly early rise. You know, we'd be up, um, we'd usually wait until the sun popped up just for safety reasons. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'd get some nourishment and uh, get out there on the road and uh, get into that van, all of us. Um, and then and then just get going and take our turns. And it, it, a full day was really interesting because emotionally and physically, you just go through so many things in one day. You know, it was amazing. You'd, you'd have some of the worst hill climbs, some of the worst headwinds, 
things like that in the morning. And by the mid-afternoon, you're somewhere in the Midwest, just on this dreamy uh, asphalt surface that's smooth as, as ever, you know, and, and beautiful surroundings and just having a glorious day. Uh, and then by the evening time, you're on the, you know, brutal hill climbs and that kind of thing again. But uh, yeah, just it just really varies. Uh, and one day, though, you can just have so, so many things thrown at you. It's just uh, quite the experience. Yeah, so many things. What were some of the dangers? Um, of course, uh, some of the some of the dangers would be surfaces, and it's usually things like entering and exiting cities. You would have the shoulder would be a little rougher. You'd have more uh, rocks and peak gravel and that kind of a thing. Um, you'd have some some areas. You would have shoulders that were so narrow. You would just constantly be having to watch your back for traffic. So the rubberneck factor was always a thing. You know, just looking back and forth just to make sure. You know, you were clear of traffic, and sometimes you just have to pick up your board and, and uh, stand and wait until it was clear and get back and go again. Um, so, yeah, just a real variety of things. Uh, mainly tra- watching out for traffic uh, was probably the most important. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Rick Stubblefield, Paul Kent, and Andrew Andrus. They spent... 17 days doing a longboard relay across the country, and they broke a record. They finished in Newport just last Friday. Um, Paul, is there a moment from the 17 days that that sticks out in your mind? Oh, um, well, uh, I mean, it it, it all kind of blurs together with the amount of uh, experience that you gain in such a short period of time. But I'd say... Uh, one thing that sticks out to me fairly regularly would be maybe the Shenandoah Pass. It was just we were climbing. Um, we didn't we didn't really uh, maybe we didn't survey the route super well at this point. Uh, there was a, a last minute redirection based on traffic, and so we were climbing um, in the Shenandoah Park, and we got to the summit, and I we all sort of realized that we were you know, looking down one of the most intense downhill runs, like in Eastern United States, uh, it's called, uh, it's been affectionately named Mordor by the downhill skaters. <laughs> and, um, it was like an 11 mile, I believe downhill with a, uh, or maybe, maybe slightly less, but, um, uh, very, 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 very steep grade through the corners. I swear the grade was much steeper than posted it was it felt like i was dropping down like 35 degree slopes when i was going in the corners and uh the bank was just ludicrous as well like and um i was able to take the corners very very fast but it's really weird because you know you're well we weren't expecting it to be there at that moment and then it was like all of a sudden it was like well i better put on some extra safety gear and there was construction and we didn't know how it looked because we didn't know when the road would stop, like if it was just like the pavement would end. But um, I think I was doing, I mean, uh, Andy might be better at remembering, but I think I was above 40 miles an hour uh, going around some of these corners. And uh, uh, it ended up actually being, um, the pavement was good, fresh. They had just repaved it like in the days before. So it was very, uh, it was actually like, I got to experience it on easy mode and and luckily uh you know i had to stop for the construction crew but there was plenty of space so it was very easy for me to slide to a stop and you know work my way down the rest of the hill sort of casually yeah well it was was a wonderful experience yeah it sounds like and it was great to talk to all three of you about this thank you so much for talking with us and congratulations 
Thank you. Cool. Thanks for having us on. Paul Kent. Yeah. Paul Kent, Andy Andrus, and Rick Stubblefield are long distance skateboarders, and they just completed a cross country relay that ended on the Oregon coast. Finally today, producer Gemma DiCarlo joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hi, Gemma. Hey, Jeff. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a growing number of concerns around the safety of e-bikes, and a number of listeners wrote in with their thoughts. Meryl Ibis said, I ride a traditional bicycle. I do not like sharing the road with e-bikes. The riders tend to not follow rules. They blow red lights. They can't stop quickly. They don't pay attention to their surroundings. They zoom past me where space is tight, forcing me to stop and wait. They need to be regulated and forced to follow either car rules or bike rules. Right now, they follow neither. Sandra Gruber added, they ride on sidewalks in Lincoln City, even in those places where there are marked bicycle lanes. If riders would stay on the roads, I'd be happy. It's a fantastic mode of transportation, especially in areas with lots of hills. They should be required to have lights and blinkers like motorcycles because they need to be seen and they need to share what they're about to do, just like all vehicles. C.A. Fry wrote, I'm an avid e-bike rider and I love mine. It has radically changed the way I get around town. I see some bad bike behavior in Portland. But I see way worse car driver behavior, which just leads me to think that jerks will be jerks no matter what they're driving or riding. Whatever gets people out of cars is a huge plus in my book. And Dale Shaper wrote, I'm a 79-year-old man living in Eugene, and it feels wonderful to have an e-bike and still be able to get out on the roads. When I turn into a big headwind or a steep uphill climb, I can turn up the power and level the hill or cancel the oncoming wind. Where you choose to focus on the negatives of e-bikes, I choose to focus on the miracle of this invention that lets a group of 70 to 83-year-olds get out on the roads every Wednesday and Friday. The Supreme Court recently ruled against the Biden administration's plan to cancel billions of dollars in student loan debt. We asked listeners how student loans have impacted them. CJ Tool wrote on Facebook, they are like a dead weight I drag around about my financial life. I've been praying, paying them off for nearly 20 years. I'm sure I've paid back what I borrowed, but I just can't seem to kill them off. Steve from Portland left us this voicemail. As a result of the Supreme Court's decision, uh, I'm 65 years old, divorced, and most likely will in the fall need to move out of my apartment because it, it's become too expensive. Uh, I'm also not going to be able to buy a house, uh, not even sure about a new car. And when I get Social Security, most likely I'll still be paying on my loans. Um, I believe my benefits will be garnished. So it doesn't look like a really good future in some ways. Finally, we talked last week about beloved Portland trailblazer Damian Lillard's possible trade. We asked listeners for their favorite Dame memories as he contemplates leaving the city. Brandon Roberts said, I took my oldest to her first basketball game and watched a back-and-forth fourth quarter. Then Dame hit a game winner to beat the buzzer over the Wizards in 2014. She has been hooked ever since. It's a sad day for Rip City, but Dame has given his all to the Blazers, and I wish him nothing but the best. Mike from Portland had slightly less positive things to say. He left us this voicemail. You know, I've enjoyed watching Damian Lillard over the years. He's a great basketball player, but I can't help but thinking right now what it must be like to be one of his teammates on the Trailblazers to whom he has said, you're just not quite good enough to help me win a championship. Not exactly a morale builder, and for me, that isn't much of a team player. So I wish him well, but uh, off he goes. We're always grateful for your comments, questions, and suggestions. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. And you can also email us. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. On Facebook, we're at opbtol. Thanks, Gemma. You're welcome, Jeff. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. 
Thank you for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Jeff Norcross. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern.